Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Vagabond Actors, where three of Europe's premier acting teachers and coaches talk about all things acting, from the craft to the business and pretty much everything in between. My name is Brian Casp, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow co-hosts, which are Gary Condes, who's joining us from London. Hey, Gary, how are you? Hey, Brian. I'm very well, thanks, and glad to be here again. Excellent. And also joining us is the effervescent Andrea Helene, who's in Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, tonight we have a question from a listener and a student of Gary's named Christian, who wanted to know about what actors should be thinking when they are performing. And so we'll delve into that in a little bit. But first, as always, we want to check in and see what we've been doing in our professional life. So who wants to kick it off? Well, what have I been up to? I have not been teaching this past week. I've missed that a little bit. So I've just been doing some other work here that's not been so creative. I am reading a screenplay that a friend of mine has written. And we did a script reading of the project that we hope to film in Paris, maybe later this summer, Mm. based out of Los Angeles. That's somebody from Playhouse West who's spearheading that. And that's a wonderful, interesting project. So it did remind me, though, I was thinking about her project because apparently out there, there are some casting calls already for a project about expats in Paris. And we know we have Emily in Paris. And there's somebody else I know, and she's been writing a book about her travels and talking about, you know, maybe we should do a show about the real expat life in Paris. And then here's my friend who's got a project going on for the last couple of years. And I think there may be room for all of it. She's got a unique perspective and I'm, I'm really excited to see its development. But I wrote a script, I co-wrote a script a few years ago. I say a few years ago, really I don't know. I suppose in the English language, people think few means two. It was not two years ago. It was more like 12 years ago. Several few years ago. Yeah. I really loved it. It came from a strong idea that I had, and I chose somebody to co-write with me, but we never really finished it to the stage of submitting it to anybody. And I don't know if it's in his cabinet or in my storage, but this week I was thinking, you know, I should just pull that thing out. I should just pull it out and take a look at it with with fresh eyes and see if there's still something there. So I guess I have Paris on the mind this week. Hmm. It's a really nice story. So I miss it. It's really been sort of surrounding me. So we'll see what happens. Cool. What about you, Gary? What have you been up to? Well, um, I think I mentioned a while back that I'd been working or was going to work with a Japanese performer who's based in Amsterdam on a one-person show Mm -hmm. and sort of enlisted me to be a bit of a soundboard and a bit of a coach through the writing process and then get to direct it, hopefully in sort of September time. So we've kind of been revisiting that. And he's very much into nature farming, which is a philosophy of abandoning the use of all chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So we've tried to get down to the core of ideas and that's sort of the baseline that's leading through it, out of which other themes will feed into it. But as the performer, he's been doing a lot of the writing and we've been getting down to the core of what a scene or sequence in this case is about and what words best support that sort of idea. And it just sort of hits home when writing something or devising something. But when there's writing involved, it's like how much you have to write to really get at 
what is at the core of certain mm-hmm. things and the seeds of ideas and then be prepared to throw a lot away too to really get to what's at the heart of it all. So yeah, he's been writing lots. I've been going over it. We've been discussing. Then we've been throwing away a lot and seeing what is left as an essence to that. You know, different to, you know, getting yeah. actors to act. But also <laughs> incredibly important. It's a great mm-hmm. process to go through. You know, there are certain ways of doing things or at least principles, whether you're writing a script for TV, a script for film, a script for the stage, or a one-person show here, which isn't necessarily a bunch of scenes, but it's about trying to find how the words support the idea. Also, knowing that I'm going to direct it, I've got an eye on the Mm -hmm. physical life of it. I'm using images Mm -hmm. to kind of see where it might go, and that's informing it. So, yeah, it's very interesting and very enjoyable. And as Brian rightly says, it's very important. Mm -hmm. We forget. We spend a lot of time with scripts as actors, and it's good to know what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Good stuff. What about you, Brian? What have you been up to this week? Well, I have been making my, I think, world-famous now, rap gifts. Oh, the photos you posted this week were beautiful. Oh, yes. If you want to have an idea of what I'm doing, join me on Instagram at Brian Casp. But for wrap gifts, I make chocolate truffles. Mm. I have four different kinds. And to be honest, this job that I'm on, the crew, when I joined, they said, are you are you bringing your truffles? Are you bringing your chocolates? Because now it's a thing that they know that if I'm there for an amount of time, I'm going to bring these wrap gifts. And it's not something that everyone does, but in thinking about the way that I like to do networking and keeping in touch Mm -hmm. with people, and not that I'm going to keep in touch with all of the crew all the time. And I don't know if I've touched on this in previous episodes, but it's really, really nice as you work. And maybe I'm lucky in that I'm working in a quite small community of artists and crew members. And so I realized through doing this job that I have friends in almost every department. Mm -hmm. And I was hanging out with the camera crew one day and I was talking with the sound guys another time. And of course, the makeup and wardrobe departments, Mm -hmm. because they're much closer to the actors, like you get to know them quite well, but they're people that I've worked with for years. And there's something very wonderful about walking onto a set and instantly knowing a whole bunch of people, Mm -hmm. having closer relationships than sometimes even the director or the main cast Mm -hmm. do, because you've just worked with these people for years and years and can kind of hang with them. And I think that's something that I'm really valuing on this particular job after not having worked for the last year or so. So making these chocolates for the crew mostly is just a really great way of saying that I appreciate them and sharing little cubes of love. Mm -hmm. I think it's not necessary to do it, but I think if you're on a show for a while that it's really a nice gesture to bring something. Uh, sometimes I'll buy lottery tickets and, and hand them out to crew mm-hmm. because they're not that expensive. And, you know, it's a nice little thing to give to people. Also, if I work with a director for a while, I'll give them a handwritten thank you card mm-hmm. at the last day of shooting to just kind of solidify that relationship and say how wonderful it was to work with them. And, I, and, and working with this director has been really great. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to keep in touch with him. Well, it also goes to, you know, helping to create a tone around you in your time on set and being a part of the solution, so to speak. You know, if you want to be in a caring, convivial set that's also professional, doing something extra is, is really welcome. It's great. really great. Yeah. And really, I think it's so easy Mm -hmm. to undervalue the work that everyone else does. Oh, yeah. 
because those crews work mm-hmm. so hard. And sometimes as an actor, you're kind of shuttled from place to place and you're pampered mostly because they don't want you wandering off to, you know, they, they want to keep track of you. <laughs> so they pamper you to keep you in one place. <laughs> but I think it's just so easy to undervalue the work that the yeah. crew does. And they work so mm-hmm. hard, so much. I feels like it's, they work so much harder mm-hmm. than I do. You know, I come on and, and do my little thing and then I leave and they're like there for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little, way to say thank you. And, and it's a nice excuse to to make something nice. I don't know if you guys know that Jennifer Garner has this whole social media following where she's doing like a home-based pretend cooking show. She loves to bake and cook. Mm-hmm. In particular, she likes to bake. And so she sets up the camera and she puts these videos out there for herself at home. And she's really completely charming and lovely. And she's got a huge following for her mm-hmm. pretend cooking show. And I think she's mm-hmm. shooting something up in Vancouver and she was in her hotel or her flat where she's staying and I'm pretty sure she was going to be baking for her crew and it was also as you described something that she was rather known for among the crew members so it's a, it's a really nice it's mm-hmm. nice energy that happens when you create something yourself and chocolates are really not that hard to do and they are much loved and you can put a lot of them in a small package okay just tell me what are the four flavors I've been dying to know since you said four flavors okay so the four flavors that I do are espresso, which I go to a local coffee shop and get a shot of the most intense espresso I can, and that goes into the chocolate. I make those. I make ginger truffles, where I take 50 grams of fresh ginger and grate it into the cream to make the ganache. Mm. And that's topped with a candied ginger on top. The pictures of that was on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then I make, usually I make a whiskey hazelnut (gasps) truffle with white chocolate shell, but I didn't have any whiskey and I wasn't about to go and buy more whiskey that night. And so I used some homemade, they call it Merunkovice, which is a apricot liqueur. So I used that in it and it's quite strong and hopefully the chocolate will mellow it out a little bit. And get your crew bombed on apricot liqueur. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the last flavor that I make, which I really love, is oh, raspberry. This sounds so good. So I take 200 grams of frozen raspberries, mix them up, mm-hmm. put them through a strainer to get the seeds out, cook it down into kind of like a jam mm-hmm. and then add add that into the chocolate. That's the inside. And then outside is a white chocolate shell. And I sprinkle some freeze-dried raspberries on top to give it a little bit extra kick. Let's do a Prague pretend baking show. Okay. Okay. Set up your, next time you, Instagram next batch. Live. Yeah. Next batch. Could you set up your camera? I want to see some of this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'll do it. I'll Good. do it. <laughs> so now let's get to Christian's question about thinking. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. 
So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Hello there. My name is Christian Casconi. I'm one of Gary's students. We were having a discussion in one of our one-on-ones recently and I thought it would make a great topic or question to talk about on the podcast. So we were discussing whether as an actor we should try to create and think the character's thoughts while we're playing the role. More broadly the topic is what should an actor be thinking while they're acting in general? Some people put forward that you shouldn't be thinking anything while you're acting and that it's almost a meditative experience with no thoughts going on inside your head. On the other extreme, there's the idea that we would pre-plan and perhaps write our own entire internal monologue that we would play in our mind throughout the piece. And somewhere in the middle, I guess, there's the idea that we are really listening and having spontaneous thoughts and opinions of what we're hearing in the moment, but through the lens of the character. So it would be great to hear from the three of you what your thoughts on thinking are while we're acting. Should we be using it? If so, can we use it as a tool and how can we make the most of it? Okay, I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying everything you're doing with the podcast. It's been so lovely to listen to throughout lockdown and I can't wait to listen to it going forward. Okay, cheers. Thank you. So what do we think and what do we think about when we're acting. I think the scale that Christian described is a pretty good one, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. It sketched out the different types of things that you can think about. Gary, where do you come down on this? Well, this is very interesting and I'm going to have to give it some thought. Okay. <laughs> Not too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that one, Brian. Thank you very much uh-huh. uh, for indulging me. Is why You're welcome. You're audience. welcome. It's very good. It's good to have some humor, as dry as it is. It's good. <laughs> You're right. It is dry. Sometimes it's been described as the Gobi Desert, but hey. <laughs> um, okay. So... Very interesting question, really good question, and it is something that does come up, and it is, again, a bone of contention with a lot of methods and styles and people. So there are pros and there are cons, and there are those people who are pro-creating characters' thoughts, and there are those who are anti-creating the characters' thoughts in performance and, and even in rehearsal. Now, I think I'll pin my colours to the mask pretty straight away. I'll start by saying that in performance, an actor really needs to be concentrating and concerned with putting their full attention on their partner, connecting with them, listening to them and responding to them instinctively. So in performance, no thinking should be taking place consciously. And really, in the best case scenario, your instincts should be the dominant player. That's not to say that thoughts won't arise. They will, just like if you try and meditate, thoughts do pop up. But any visible thought should arise naturally or organically rather than imposed. And I kind of lean towards what Christian said as part of his last option, somewhere in the middle he said, where we're really listening and having spontaneous thoughts and opinions about what we're hearing in the moment, but through the lens of the character. Mm -hmm. Everything should be so rehearsed and embodied and programmed that any thoughts that do arise should be aligned with the work you've done or in line with the circumstances and not imposed there in the moment as a way of trying to manipulate the situation. They shouldn't be extraneous and they shouldn't throw you off balance and put you in your head so that you lose all connection and active listening with your partner. 
That's where I lie, which doesn't mean that they can't be used to good effect in rehearsal, which maybe I'll talk a little bit about later. But, you know, people who really are anti-characters thinking, let's say, Mm -hmm. what they'll say is that you've got to find the life of the character by discovering what the character's purpose in the scene and translating that into some kind of point of view that you can adopt and that you do not need to think your character's thoughts because the inner life of the character is fiction and therefore they believe that it's locked away from you. But you need to find an achievable, real to you way to behave with some point of view as the character in this particular scene and embodying this point of view in order to feed into their psychologically driven action in the scene. And that's what brings the character to life. Now, in a way, a point of view is a bunch of collected thoughts amalgamated into a feeling about something. These sort of anti-thinking schools are into finding the inner life of the character through their point of view. And I'm kind of sympathetic to that. If you spend a lot of time, which some people do when they are pro-character thinking, is writing down the character's thoughts alongside every sentence that the character is saying, maybe getting at their subtext, maybe their subtext of what they're thinking. But that can sort of coagulate the mind and overburden oneself, particularly in performance. You've got enough to be getting on with. Mm -hmm. All of that work can be distilled down into an overall point of view, which, as I say, is a thought about something. It's an affinity to something, a point of view. It's a relationship to something, which underneath you'll have a whole bunch of thoughts that are kind of stuck to it. But in performance, I'm not sure you necessarily need to consciously think those things if your point of view is embodied, secure, connected to, and personalized. Mm -hmm. Andrea, what do you think? I think Gary has put this together really well. I'm in total agreement. I think thinking of it as a point of view is a more powerful and free and creative way to go about it than to consider that one needs to sort of narrate the entire piece underneath what you're saying and doing. This can get academic. And as you said, it can get muddy, I think, if you're really burdening yourself with this idea that you need to be consciously aware of subtext. In a way, this is a, you know, this is a misfit of an idea. If you know, for example, that you're in a scene with somebody and your overarching point of view is he's far too drunk when he came in here. I disapprove of where he's been tonight. I think he's bordering on being out of line with me. I feel somewhat abused by his treatment of me. There's going to come a point in the scene when I'm going to have to say enough and I'm going to have to take the upper hand and I'm going to have to discipline him and I'm going to actually have to get him out of my space for my safety. Something like that. You can chart the course of the scene. You can chart the things that you have to do within the scene, which we've talked a lot about in our podcast, and have an overall feeling about this person and still allow for a very spontaneous and creative responsiveness in the moment to your partner. And if you think in particular in terms of theatrical pieces, when you're performing this over and over again, I think personally that you have to allow room for creative growth and for each performance to be unique. Because it may be that on Thursday night, he's really rabid. You know, the way your partner's coming into the scene is just really, really fierce. And there's a danger to it that isn't in every performance. And you have to be an adjustment to that. You have to take that in. And if you know what your point of view is and you know what you have to do, then you're not going to be working against your homework. Mm -hmm. But if you've set 
an interior monologue in place and your partner gives you something that makes some piece of what you've prepared untruthful, oh, you're going to go nuts. You're going to be completely in your mind trying to chart the course anew. And I think this is a a dangerous place to be. So for me, one of the reasons, and I think Brian has similar points of view, and you too, Gary, because you, you always talk also about the importance of listening spontaneously in the moment with clarity and hyper awareness. And I think if an actor really can train to work that way, then he becomes more willing to release that control mm, I love it. in the spaces between of a scene. Then we're really willing to swim and to roll and to be present and to see what happens spontaneously, which is where so much goodness comes from. But if you're anchored with a strong and clear point of view about something, then you are allowing for movement. And I think that if you are an actor who wants to really put that time in and write those notes in the margins and be really clear about it, then focus on your partner's dialogue more than your own. Mm. Then I would say, take a look at that partner's dialogue, every single line, and put some music on and think about it. And think about everything that that means to you and the feelings that that brings up in you. And let your mind experience it a number of different ways. And then make some notes about what you really think is going on with that action or that piece of dialogue that you get from your partner. Mm. That's interesting to me. But if you're going to be trying to control every movement that you make from this secondary voice in the background, I think you can get into trouble. Now, one other thing, there are situations that we find ourselves in which are highly technical. Maybe we didn't have a large role or we didn't have the opportunity for a great deal of rehearsal or we just got the script on Monday and we have to shoot it on Tuesday. We're just trying to get through this thing. You know, this happens sometimes. So I think if you're an actor who feels the need to rely on having this interior monologue developed, those situations are really going to throw you because you have to figure out your marks and the lighting and the thing. And then you're coming off and you have to take care of all these things. And, you know, you can't angle yourself. Like there, there is so much that the conscious mind needs to be taken care of in mm. performance, whether on stage or behind a camera, that. I think you can really clutter it too much if you are trying to do the same thing with the actual being present to your partner and spontaneously listening and behaving. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I'm the Greek chorus here kind of going, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. Very good. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys kind of hit most of the points that I wanted to hit, you know, and and all three of us are coming from a very similar way of looking at solving the acting problem. So Mm -hmm. it's not that surprising that we're all kind of coming down mostly on the side of that middle way that Christian described, which is putting your attention on your partner, listening through the lens of the connection that you've created in your analysis mm-hmm. and the doings that you have to do and and the reasons why that's happening in the script, mm-hmm. all of that work that we do. And we talked about it a lot in the Digging Into Text episode. We keep going back to that one. That's a that's a real touchstone, that, mm-hmm. those three episodes. So definitely, if you haven't listened to those, go and listen to them. And then, you know, for all the reasons that you both have said, I, I'm in complete agreement with both of you, really. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Gary, you had a studio situation where this question came up. And I'm sure in their minds, the actors had a number of different perspectives and have maybe faced it in certain ways. 
So talk to us about this idea of judging whether or not you're thinking the right or wrong things while acting and how that can impact a performance. Can you talk about that, whether or not you're thinking sure. things properly? Or if your mind goes to catering and you're you're in the middle of a scene and suddenly you're like, God, I'm hungry, <laughs> and the, the beating up that can happen. Just talk to us about the judgment right. that, that we have of the mind in the moment while we're actually performing. Well, coming at it from a Meisner repetition exercise paradigm, it's linked quite closely to the judgment of the right or wrongness of what the other person's doing or their pinpointing of your behavior Mm -hmm. or the judgment of your own response, whether that's right or wrong or acceptable Mm -hmm. or not acceptable. And, you know, the danger, in addition to the brittleness of Mm. writing out an interior monologue for all the reasons that you mentioned, Andre. That's a great word, brittleness, to describe this. Yeah. Great word. That is so evocative of the experience of doing just that. Yeah, because what happens is anything that doesn't fit in with what you thought was supposed to happen, Mm -hmm. and that's in the best case scenario that you analyzed it correctly and you came up with all of the best thoughts that are going to bring out the best in you and you wrote them all down and you kind of memorized them. Or I don't actually know how interior monologues are really supposed to work because I've never really done much of them, but you've kind of internalized it in some way and now you're stuck if something goes wrong wrong where the other person doesn't do what you thought they should do or something on set happens that you didn't account for. You know, I don't know how flexible those things might be, but it could fall apart quite easily. You know, to answer your question about the rightness or wrongness, when we are looking initially at a student's repetition exercise and trying to move them out of the thought paradigm into the feeling paradigm or into the mm-hmm. the response paradigm. One of the things that we say is that those thoughts that you have, the appropriateness or inappropriateness of either your own response or the impetus from the other person, that paradigm has everything to do with control. And that control has everything to do with being afraid of being hurt Mm -hmm. in some way. And so saying I'm thinking the wrong thing when you are in the act of creation is really in in a very meta way your attention is on the wrong thing. Because if you're thinking about how you're thinking the wrong thing, then you aren't able to take in anything new that might come at you from the world outside of you. And in, in our way of looking at the acting problem, for the most part, that's what you're going to be responding to is the stuff that comes at you from the world around you, the stuff that the other person does or the other person says, or the stuff that's in your environment. Mm hmm. And so, like you said, Gary, in a meditation, Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I'm doing this wrong, the only solution to that is to go back to the breath or to go back to the mantra. And in this case, that mantra, like a meditation or the breath in a meditation for us as actors will be the listening to the other person Mm -hmm. and taking what you can from them. And so anytime you're thinking, oh, I'm doing this wrong or I'm thinking this wrong, I'm I'm off somewhere. I, I mean, I've had moments on stage where I... I go, oh, I'm an actor standing on a stage. Or if I'm, I'm on set and I go, oh, there's a camera right in my face. Look at that. And yeah. I'm in the middle of acting. Yeah. You know, it's, we're human. And yes, it's nice if you are so carried away by the plot or the story or what's happening that you forget about those things. But in a lot of ways, you don't want to forget that there's a camera that's shooting you because you might need to adjust. Mm-hmm. The other actor might have like blundered into your light. And so in order to save a take, you might need to understand that and adjust. So you can't forget about it. But at the same time, thinking about those 
those things is not wrong, but it shouldn't be the only thing you're thinking about. It shouldn't, judging that shouldn't be the only thing you're thinking about. Okay. Save me for myself, Gary, to uh, add something to this. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's all good. I have to e- heavily edit that, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> have you been eating those brownies, those chocolates? Are they, they're, 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 not, they're not. They're not. The especially sugar ones. You've been giving uh, a kick. No. The apricot. I just get excited about this. I, I get excited and then I lose my anchor. So, <laughs> I mean, in terms of characters' thoughts, certainly in performance, I think we're all aligned in that. And I think that's the only way one can go about it because any performer, whether it's actor, performing arts, or sports person, you know, it's let go, let flow. And the head is not conducive to that, is no. it? And consciously thinking thoughts that you have consciously designed to appear at certain times goes against all of that. And I think it's not helpful. But there are times in rehearsal where one can at least examine a character's thoughts and could maybe lead you as a way towards formulating a point of view. As Stanislavski, a good old godfather of acting technique, (laughs) said, through conscious technique, we pave the way to subconscious creativity. Mm -hmm. So there is some work that you can do and that I do in class that takes into account examining the character's thoughts in a particular moment of a scene or the whole scene, and then talking that out improvisationally and riffing on it and making subtext talked out and improvised in order to crystallize one's point of view by talking out what might be construed as the character's thoughts about someone, relationship, something, an affinity, or some underlying unspoken thing, subtext, that's a kind of psychophysical way of boiling down those thoughts into an essence Mm. that can then be expressed in words, but creates a feeling or an impression or an image that then can be carried into performance that supports one's point of view. Do you think that there's a difference doing that exercise where the actor is talking out the thoughts and exploring it in a spoken form Mm -hmm. versus writing out the thoughts? Most definitely. Psychophysical. The very act of speaking something Mm -hmm. out, perhaps to a partner, even though it's all improvisational. I often have the other person who's in the scene sitting opposite the person who's exploring these thoughts, let's say, speaking to them as if They are the person who's in the scene, so they recognize that. And they are the person who they have a relationship with of some kind, so that they start to have a focus of where to put that. And by speaking it out to them, by starting to live out these, let's say, thoughts in active expression, there's reverberations that happen. You know, I've seen people break down in tears or get really angry, and things start to happen to them and affect Mm -hmm. them because they're making subconscious connections as they go along. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's the difference between reading a manual about football and then kicking a football about and seeing mm-hmm. how your foot hits a ball and how that makes it go in a certain direction. You're sitting down and you're being very academic. And it's what Stanislavski yeah. actually ended up dumping and getting towards with his active analysis towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this is. It's a kind of active analysis of distilling what we're calling characters' thoughts into something that you can actually carry around with you mm-hmm. as a magic box that has all of that stuff encased in it, immersed in it, but not necessarily consciously 
available, you know, because at some point you start to unpack a character's thoughts and it's never ending. Right. Mm -hmm. All actors' work is about boiling it down so it's actable. The thing that occurred to me, the difference between writing and talking, is that writing has a sense of permanence to it. And that can contribute to this idea of, well, it's right or wrong. Mm. So the stuff that I've written down is the right stuff. And if something comes up that I didn't write down, it's not right. Whereas if you're doing this talking exercise, because it's much more a living experience, which is true when it's happening and then gone, it's much easier to let go of the specifics of it. And the essence of what you're talking about, the thing that gets distilled down, that's what's left. Absolutely. And you know what? You should be able to work the other way. You're not going to do this in performance, but let's say you've done all of that work and then you go, okay, so now go the other way. I get what your point of view is. You're now living that out and I see it in the scene. So now sit down and tell me everything that formulates this point of view. And the actor should be able to give me all their thoughts about why they love this pop band and why they hate that person and the details about that. But you're never Mm. conscious of that, are you, when you're doing it? Right. Because that's the kind of rehearsed lived experience that you've programmed in that is no longer at the forefront of your mind, because it shouldn't be. You know, I suppose it's like learning for exams and stuff like that. You, you have all of this information, but you have a certain trigger or post-it note that can unlock everything else if need be. So it's all behind it, but that's part of the process of making your crystallized point of view solid. Yeah. Andrea, what did you think about this idea of right and wrong? Did you have a different take on it? No, I think you summarized it very well. I think it's a dangerous place to be when we are beating ourselves up while we're in the middle of the scene because we haven't done something according to the homework. Mm. And I think also that the approaches such as the Meisner approach or the approach that Gary's just been describing, the improvisation into a scene, the exploration of a scene and the emotional life, the moments the behavior, the point of view, all of this becomes so clear through a series of improvisations or a series of rehearsals where we allow ourselves time and space to explore. I love the idea of the magic box. That's really what it is, isn't it? It's that you have then created a series of experiences Mm. that will live in you uniquely each time you then perform the scene. Some days you may really touch on that hurt that's right below the surface where you're going to want to break into tears at any moment. And other days it may be the snappy part of you. And other days there's a sweetness and a calm because you're afraid to break. Who knows? It may color you uniquely in each performance. And I personally love to work that way. And I love to work with actors who are willing to let each take or each evening be unique. Not that they are not trying to fulfill the needs of the script and the storytelling. They're there present in the story, but they also allow room for play and unique expression, unique, spontaneous, alive expression. And I really, really love that. I love the idea that we carry with us something that has already created growth in us as humans, that we've already expanded our ideas about what a character could possibly be thinking about something, Mm. and that we haven't nailed it down on maybe the first or second read and decided this is what I'm thinking. Instead, we've allowed ourselves to experience it and to play with it 
maybe even question our original ideas about something. And because it's based in the experience of it, we also leave ourselves open to future growth and to changing our mind. Mm. You know, maybe you find then that you've done the scene a number of times, you've got a number of performances on your belt, and there's a color that's not there. There's something that's not happening or what you've placed in your heart, in your head about this is just not sufficient in some way. And you need to go back to it and go deeper into it. Mm. You have to leave yourself open to the possibility of greater and greater understanding with each rehearsal and each performance. Why do you guys think that some techniques explore this idea of the internal monologue because I'm very strongly in agreement with what we're talking about here. And I feel like, like Gary was saying, it can be almost detrimental to write out an internal monologue and then just think that as the piece is going on. But why do you think that's something that people ask actors to do? So part of it is trying to recreate the actual experience that humans go through in terms of having thoughts happen. But is performance on the same level as that? Does it have to actually mirror the exact experience of everyday life? Because let's remember performance is a heightened place to be. It's a heightened experience that requires a certain concentration which is beyond civilian life. I felt, as you were saying that, the connection between saying, these are the thoughts that this human being, if this character was a human being, would be having at this point, right? And so I'm going to try and have those thoughts. Yeah, but you said it right now. I'm going to try and have those thoughts. If you're saying these are the correct thoughts of this character, right, and that's what you've decided, then that plays right into the idea that there are right thoughts and wrong thoughts thoughts. And as you were saying that, Gary, what I was thinking is the truth is you're going to be thinking the whole time anyway, because you're a human being and you're going to be having thoughts anyway. Right. I'm not consciously thinking of my dinner. That's just popped in. But even like, like I said, you're on stage, you're thinking, oh, I'm on stage right now. And now maybe that, that may not be in response to what's happening around you. But, you know, like even you writing out something and I, I asked you why someone would say this and now I'm refuting it, <laughs> the, the hypothetical why someone would say this. It just seems so dead when you do that. Yeah. I mean, it's concerned with something else, which in a way you can't control. If you're really open to thoughts, then you can't control those thoughts that come in because the right. whole point of meditation is to quieten the mind, right? If we're talking about meditation, it quiets the mind and hopefully mm -hmm. that chattering mind quietens maybe doesn't go away completely, but you have more time being in the observer, if you like, than not. But those thoughts you have no control over. So to try and implant thoughts that you believe the character is thinking is actually unorganic. If you're really pursuing something, you don't have time for other thoughts. That's right. If you're doing it, then there's no room for anything other than the actual doing of it. There is no room for that mental manipulation. Right. And that's when meditation is at its best. And that's when acting is at its best, because all your attention is on where it needs to be, which is why I put the emphasis on an objective, because that focuses you. But you look at also in life, too, when you're the most focused is when you are really in the zone because you're really doing something. One of the best ways to get rid of unsolicited thoughts is put your attention fully on what you do want to think about. Or the thing that you're doing, right? So maybe that's wise because it's a misguided attempt 
to recreate the real process that happens in a human being, which mm-hmm. actually doesn't lend itself mm-hmm. to recreation. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But to the disciplined creation of performance. Right. Andrea, do you have another thought about why someone would recommend that actors go through the process yes. of an in- interior monologue? <laughs> Yes. I mean, first of all, I'm totally on the same page as both of you on this. Yeah. We're currently, for the listener, we're having a heated agreement. So it's, you know, (laughs) there's not much pushback on this one. I totally agree. But I think also there is a more rudimentary reason why some people encourage this kind of work. And I think it is ego-based. I'm afraid. I think it's based in the idea that there's some incredible manipulation that needs to be learned in order to be outstanding and that certain teachers feel the need to confirm their own brilliance by engaging students in these mental gymnastics. And I think it's often at the expense of the true creative impulses of the actors. And so in a Mm. way, if you want to talk about talent, it often can work against their own talent Mm. if they're not careful. And certainly their own instincts. Yeah. If the instincts are, are left ashore because we're too busy doing this fantastic thing that we put together, you know, with hours and hours and hours of work where I, everything I say is really something else. I don't know that I even want to see that, honestly. I'm always interested in watching actors thinking, but it's about what they're thinking in the moment as they're experiencing their circumstances. I'm watching what they're thinking as they're listening and as they're doing, and there's only room for truth there. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So I'm interested in the truth of their behavior. That's what I'm interested in. Whether they say a word or not, if, if it's all about taking in their circumstances and the moments and they're present to it, then it's truthful. And then I'm interested. I'm on the right. And that's not to say, and I think we all agree that thoughts do appear and they would appear. Let's say you've got a pause. Let's say you've mm-hmm. got a silent scene on camera and yeah. you've done all your work and a thought will arise, but it'll arise in connectedness to what you're doing, what's happening. It'll rise organically because you've done all the other work. For instance, let's say if you're on camera, and maybe it's also worth saying because you hear it a lot, don't you? Particularly for yeah. camera work. We've got to see you thinking your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to come out in your eyes. You don't have to do anything extra consciously. But if you're really thinking, I hate that motherfucker, I can't believe they stole my my mother's jewellery, then you'll see that in the eyes and it'll read in the face muscles and if it's a close-up and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. That is a thought. But to me, that thought is mm-hmm. connected to the circumstances, which is really a point of view expressed right. in a thought or a thought expressed in a point of view. What it isn't yep. is a remembered idea that you've placed down, mm-hmm. probably written down on paper, as Brian says, as a way mm-hmm. of making sense what that person is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. There we go. You know, going to church. <laughs> Earlier today, I was rereading a segment in Meisner's book on acting where he's asked specifically about when Stella Adler came back from working with Stanislavski and the rift that then ensued between Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and Meisner, with Meisner and Adler really being very much on the same page about the work. It's always been clear that when they talk about emotional preparation, there was a big gap. 
But there's also this piece about where the attention should go and the quality of the work and the intellectual exercise of it. And that the repetition exercise that Meisner founded was really to tackle this question of an over-intellectual approach and the manipulation of the mind in the work. When uh, we start looking at scripts, I think I've already mentioned this on the podcast, what I love to point out is how the listening through pinpointing, really, so you're saying something, but you're really listening to behavior is a connective exercise. Mm -hmm. And trying to say words that someone else wrote and remember the order that those words are supposed to go in and all of the pressure that comes with how the scene is supposed to go, that is a disconnective exercise because your attention immediately no matter who you are, starts to get pulled away from what's happening in the moment and gets put onto what is supposed to happen, what you're supposed to say, how it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. If you were working off of an interior monologue, mm -hmm. not only would you have the words that you're supposed to say and all of the associated preconceptions that come with that, but you'd also have all of this other stuff, as Gary was saying, which is all the stuff that you're supposed to be thinking. So having those two juggernauts of <laughs> attention hogs rolling around in your head at the same time, how could you ever have any spontaneous instinctive response to what's happening in the moment? I don't think you can. What is brilliant about watching really great acting is the idea that anything can happen. There's this element of surprise that moments come up that the actor doesn't seem like they're anticipating. And it's so, so, so hard to have a surprising moment when you've written out all of the thoughts that you're supposed to have and you're just kind of going down the, the list of the thoughts. I think it's, uh, I know that I would have an impossible time having something spontaneous happen. Yeah, you're tied up in knots. Exactly. And, and it's so prescriptive that there's no room for anything else and you can't let go of it. Now, we talk a lot about doing your work and letting go. And, you know, I'm a fan of actions and I think they are uh, artistic use of one's building blocks in an actor. But you can still work on rehearsal in having a line of actions throughout a scene in, in through your beats, if you like, in a scene, but you can still let go of those in a way that is affected by the other person and the day and the intensity of it maybe drops away. And we've talked about this in our actions episode, but that is something that you can kind of may seem prescriptive, but can be let go of, or at least left alone and can be changed with the moment. Whereas it feels like writing down the character's thoughts and learning them like another text is not something you can leave alone. I wouldn't be able to, exactly. for sure. <laughs> exactly. But here's a thought. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Who's to say that the character knows that they're having an inner monologue anyway? Actors use inner monologues because that's what the character is supposed to be thinking throughout this sequence. But is the character aware that they're having an inner monologue in the first fucking place? No. Exactly. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Not so, usually. You know, but it's, it's like, if you ask me, what am I thinking of right now? I can maybe reverse engineer and go, well, this, this, and this. But in the, it, it, as I'm talking, I, I'm not aware of it. So no, we know you're not aware of what you're saying when you're talking, Gary. Come on. <laughs> that is evident. <laughs> but I've managed, yeah. <laughs> managed to squeeze out 50 fucking podcasts from it, so it can't be that bad. I know. Can't be that bad. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, 
you, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, by using and acknowledging the inverted commas characters in a monologue while you are speaking is to say that they're aware of it. And actually, they're probably not, you know, unless we talked about this in Petra's questions about if you're lying, you can make yeah. something going on. So there are instances where there's a tension mm-hmm. going on and what's inside and what's mm-hmm. outside. True but maybe not to the extent of mm-hmm. having mono, in monologues throughout every scene. Yeah, and I think a lot of that stuff, as we talked about in Petra's episode, can be covered in the doings and the actions. Right. And getting those thoughts happening as a result of the thing that you're going after instead of as the starting place. Right. I think that's, that's, a, that's something maybe to think about, is that the thoughts that you're having are in response to something that's happening around you organically. Right. So no, instead is- of mm-hmm. starting with the thought and then having that be the thing yeah. that triggers everything else. Absolutely. I mean, he's a motherfucker because he stole my mother's jewelry. Now, that thought might not be phrased in that way, but that point of view is going to stay the same. Yeah. But what happens in that moment when he arrives in the house or through the door is that will arise and I'll think something along those lines, mm. but it's not going to be necessarily the prescriptive one that I've written on my page. Right. The right. brittle one. Yeah. yeah. Good. I think it's a really great question that Christian has posed. And, you know, it's come up before, especially as we get our students into more advanced scene work. And I hope we've been able to bring some light to it. And I'm I'm pleased that we're all pretty much on the same page about it. But it's frustrating, I think, for us as teachers too, also to see the gymnastics that some actors are either asked to perform or think that they have to perform when really, if they would just be more present to the simple truth of the moments, they might have a much easier and exciting time in their performance. Good stuff to think about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we can safely say, I think it would be reasonable for us to agree with the third option that Christian came up with, which is... Yes. Yes. Actors are listening and having spontaneous thoughts and opinions about what they're hearing in the moment, but through the lens of the character. Mm-hmm. Through the lens, That's meaning right. taking on the opinions of that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's what I want to do. So I'm imagining that there are people out there that might be listening to us that are screaming at their podcast player. Uh, that <laughs> There's something that we didn't understand about the real value of an interior monologue. So if you're one of those people, get in touch. I I mean, I think it would be nice actually to hear someone who really finds doing those monologues, the inner monologues valuable. And so if if that's you, then get in touch. And we'd love to hear what that is, what we're missing about it, what we're not seeing. And then we'll, we'll argue and we'll tell you that we're right. And then you'll, you know, go home with your tail between your legs. So, or if there's something a particular technique that you guys out listening to us have of dealing with this question of thought that we didn't touch on, definitely get in touch. And and we really do, we really, really do appreciate having this kind of contact with the listeners because, I mean, to be honest, when, when we started the podcast a, a year ago, I mean, this was one of the ideas that it wouldn't be just us coming up with topics and talking about them, but it would be more of a conversation between the listeners who are bringing up thoughts or questions that they had and us expounding on them and muddying the waters and, and kind of getting in there. So if you want to get in touch with us, we're at Vagabond Actors on Instagram and Facebook. 
Facebook, and on Twitter. But before we leave you all, we want to check in and see if there's anything that we can recommend. So what have you guys seen or experienced this week that you want to recommend to our listeners? I've been listening to a book on Audible called Professional Troublemaker by Lavi Ajayi Jones. She's fabulous. I love listening to it on Audible because she has such great rhythm. She's a comedian and a public speaker, a Nigerian-born woman who just has fabulous stories. And it's geared more towards women, I would say, but it's really about this idea of taking honesty into your life, understanding who you are, having integrity with your word, and fighting fear. And we all know how much actors contend with fear of doing, fear of judgment, fear of success, fear of failure. So she really takes Mm. this on and I'm enjoying it very much. In fact, I'm thinking to do a little bit of a book club with it with a couple young people I know and their mothers maybe, because I think there's no time like the present to take on this question of the things that hold us back from being fully awesome. As she says, Mm -hmm. she talks about really embracing, she says your dopeness, what makes you totally dope and why do you back away from it? And how is the world benefiting if you don't stand up and proclaim what makes you unique and wonderful? And it's very important for actors and for creative persons to be reminded that that which makes us unique or which we have felt we've had to defend before in ourselves is actually maybe our superpower. Hmm. So. I highly recommend Professional Troublemaker, a fear fighter manual. All right. Nice. Gary, (laughs) what about you? Well, on the weekend, it was kind of struggling to find things to watch that hit what we really wanted to see. And so we ended up watching The Mule by Clint Eastwood, his new movie. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I was reminded, because I haven't seen it, you know, he's very, I mean, he's so old now, he's in his 80s, and he directed it and he was in it. It's not the best movie in the world, but the reason I'm putting it out there as a tip is more the script and the structure of writing and sort of going back to what we talked about at the top of the episode is there's such great examples of simple chronological storytelling, very classic, that breathes and that gently unfolds in one direction. It's very unfussy. It's simple, but not simplistic. And I learned so much and I was reminded of so much of just watching it, the story, the way it was structured. Mm -hmm. One thing leads to another. There's nothing showy about it. And you can just sit there and you just get involved in the story and it takes you along. And then before you know it, it's over and you've been taken on this real journey and got involved with the characters and nothing's getting in the way. Nothing's really hitting you over the head. Nothing's promoted. It's all very natural, Mm -hmm. gentle, and really good, uncomplicated storytelling. Yeah. He certainly does know how to do spare, doesn't he? Yeah. He's very economic with his work, which is one of his loveliest qualities to me. It's a delight because it's like, yeah, I don't have to try. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to be taken along here and Mm -hmm. that's it. And uh, very classic. And some people might find it boring, but there's space for things to happen to you rather than be bombarded. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was a very nice reminder of that by him. So, Um, There you go. The Great tip. What about you, Brian? Well, I don't know. Did I talk about Buster Keaton? No. 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 My family has started a tradition of Friday night being our movie night, where we sit down Mm -hmm. in front of our TV 
and we have downloaded or we stream a movie. And my wife has been showing some really great classic Czech movies. And then I started showing some more classic American movies to our kids. And the whole family sits down and watch and we have popcorn and it's great. And so two weeks ago, we watched The General, which is a Buster Keaton movie. And the kids were, I think it was a little bit like what are we watching? What is this? Because it's a silent movie and it's very stylistic, but yeah, why are they not talking? And what are these weird gestures? Because it's very, you know, the acting is, <laughs> is a different style than they might be used to, but they really enjoyed it after a while and got into it. And the stunts are just insane, of course, Buster Keaton style. And last week we watched Blazing Saddles, which is a great Mel Brooks movie with some wonderful performances. The theme is about racism and it's very, they, they really had, in 1974, they had a lot of different standards about what was it, it was okay to say than they do today. So um, there were quite a few N-words in the movie that I think that's the whole point of saying it in the movie, but it was a little bit shocking when we played it with our kids there. <laughs> and uh, and this coming Friday, we're going to watch Young Frankenstein, which I started rewatching. So the, oh, the reason I God. brought it up was I found it and I started rewatching it. And it's just Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks at their absolute tip-top best. And uh, and it's oh, just God, so good. So, oh, God. Young Frankenstein. Right. It's great. Really good. You should yeah. get onto the producers after that. So good. Uh, well, I thought about it. I thought about it. It would be. It would be good. I. I think after Blazing Saddles, I think the producers will be fine. Yeah. For the kids to watch, they're a little bit like, "What is going on here?" But I think. That, yeah, I think that's going to do it for us. So, if you want to get in touch with me and and see actual pictures of my chocolate creations, you can. Look at them at Brian Casp on Instagram. And I also post thoughts and little quips, which evidently my mom doesn't understand any of what I tweet, but I, I post stuff on Twitter. That's also at Brian Casp. And uh, what about you, Andrea? Well, at least you have a mother who's on Twitter. Mine doesn't do anything. Yeah, barely. I can't She's even barely text on Twitter. Her a photo. I'm just saying it's much easier if you can at least like send your mother a photo on the phone and say, I'm alive. Today's a good day. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm envious that your mother's on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, yes, I am on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene and on Instagram at Andrea Helene three. And Gary, what about you? Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Gary Condes, or get in touch via my website. Just get on the contact page and drop me an email, garycondes.com. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. We hope that you all have a wonderful, creative, and most importantly, healthy and safe week. So that's it from us. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Christian. <laughs> <laughs>